Welcome back to Generals and Napoleon, episode 71, Cambasere, Second Council of France. Before we begin, I'd like to remind all of our listeners that if you'd like to support our podcast, please go to patreon.com forward slash Generals and Napoleon. There, you'll find a $5 a month option and a $10 a month option for supporting our program. If you'd like to support our podcast in other ways, please go to YouTube, Spotify, or Instagram and give us a follow and a like. Now, on with the show. Uh, We have our good friend, Charles McKay, joining us. Say hello, Charles. Hey, John. How are you? Thanks for Uh, having me. Yeah, yeah. I'm happy to have you again. Uh, Charles is a frequent contributor to the show. Uh, For those who are uninitiated, Charles, can you get everyone a bit of background on your your studies of the Napoleonic era? Uh, Sure. Uh, I did my uh, PhD at Florida State at the Institute of French Revolutionary and Napoleonic Studies. And uh, I worked for years as an academic teaching at uh, both Moorhead State University and uh, WVU. Oh, yeah. West Virginia University. That's right. Indeed. Um, Fantastic. Well, who are we going to discuss today? I think he's kind of an interesting character. We are going to discuss today Cambuceré, the second consul and the gentleman largely responsible for drafting the uh, Code Napoleon, what became known as the Code Napoleon. Okay, so everyone that listens to this podcast probably knows that Napoleon became first consul of France in 1799, but many forget that he was one of three consuls who were supposed to rule the government, I guess kind of like a Roman triumvirate or right, like some sort of power sharing ruler exactly yeah and these other two guys one was Cambasere and the other one was a guy named Lebrun um who are these guys were they just flunkies or were they very smart individuals <laughs> uh they are definitely not uh flunkies uh, okay. <laughs> uh but they were chosen for their you know, backing up just a little bit to lead into the coup of Brumaire, this this was engineered, at least the, the thinking part was was engineered by the um, Abbey CA, who long time, you know, an important pre-revolutionary figure survived all of the different governments during the revolution and then wanted to set up the, the what became known as the consulate. Uh, and he had a whole scheme uh, for doing this. He mm-hmm. and Cambuceré uh, were, were well known to each other and had worked together uh, during the course of the revolution on on various things. So Cambuceré gets pulled into this um, through his association uh, with the ABCA. Okay, okay. Yep. Thank you for that background. Um, Well, let's let's kind of back up even a bit more. Uh, Cambuceré was born in October, 1753 in Montpelier, France. Do you know what his upbringing was like? Uh, we don't know too much. He had a brother who went into the clergy, uh, and his family was from a prominent, they had a prominent legal background, uh, and they were nobles who essentially bought their nobility in the 17th century. Mm. So there's a long family history of their activity in law, and Cambuceré goes to the law school there in Montpellier, and um, by all by all traces looks like he's going to father uh, follow his father who was also a functionary and then became the mayor of Montpellier. Uh, it should be noted that many of these posts uh, they bought uh, but the the um, cambuserets were were known for their competence mm. and um, 
you know, their ability to to master the law and 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 get things done. And thank you for pronouncing Montpellier properly for me. <laughs> I'm used to the uh, the American version, uh, you know, up in uh, New England right. there, Mont- Montpellier. Yep. Yeah. Uh, like you said, he kind of follows in his dad's footsteps. 1774, he graduates from uh, law school, basically. Do mm-hmm. you know what his uh, first career choice was? Uh, yeah, he started as a functionary. He followed his father, actually, as a... He might have been a notary in, yeah. uh, in, in Montpellier. And just literally, when his father gets enough, amasses enough wealth to buy the next position in line, it's just, you know, Jean-Jacques, his son just kind of slots up into the into the next round. Okay, so things are going good. He's gonna follow his father's footsteps and become a, a lawyer. But um, he gets kind of swept up in the French Revolution of 1789, and he holds a seat in the National Convention. Um, he has an interesting role in the trial of the deposed King Louis the Sixteenth. Um, it, it's interesting in that he's very, like you said, he's very rational and makes careful decisions. They could, they could come back to haunt him later, but they don't because he's, he's somewhat rational in his decisions when dealing with the deposed king, don't you think? Yeah, and, and so he gets elected kind of uh, in 1789. He gets elected from the nobility mm-hmm. um, as a sort of backup representative. There was some idea that perhaps one of the actions Louis XVI would take to, to kind of uh, keep an eye on the third estate or not let the you know states general get out of control was to have essentially they, they might double the number of of noble uh representatives and uh, cambuser was a backup mm-hmm. uh, for that he's well liked by just about everybody he doesn't really have any enemies right um and part of that is his skill but also i think part of that is he was very active in freemasonry mm. uh, and he had a, a pretty wide net of contacts uh through that and between the years of of uh 1789 and 1792 when the trial of the king happens he gets elected uh not only to positions within you know the french government and you know committee chairs and things like that but also he's he's moving up uh within the ranks of of freemasonry as well okay so and he is a kind of a far thinker. Yeah, you know, if you you hear sometimes people make analogies to to chess, he's often you know three, four, five moves ahead of his contemporaries in um, planning his next steps. And he knew that putting the the king on trial right uh, was going to be fraught with. Well, it was going to be fraud. It was going to be dangerous for him not to vote for the king's death. But at the end of the day, Cambuseray is a pretty moderate mm-hmm. uh, in his views. And I don't think personally, and this is just a personal uh, opinion, I don't have any evidence to back this up that, that I could put my hands on at the moment. I don't think he wanted the king to be executed. Right. Right. So and what he does is he does vote for the, the guilt of, of uh, the king in terms of, you know, crimes against France, if you right. will. The, right. the, I don't think there was much doubt that or much uh, political damage in voting that way. Right. I, I think that it comes down to what they're going to do with the king's execution. Right. Because I think he wanted to hold off on the execution, at least for 
uh, you know, several months. Let's kind of just see how things shake out and just imprison him. Sure. And, and the crux of his argument was not an emotional one. It was one of trying to figure out whether France's newly concentrate uh, or uh, consummated legislature had the authority to try the king. Right. And that's where he based his objections, wondering if the legislature had jurisdiction, if you want to, uh, over uh the the life and and times of the king in that case okay so he he put he made his argument predicated on that and mm -hmm. then he was able to at least in his own mind argue and, and he did argue that you know maybe we should table the consequences portion of this verdict until we've worked out what role we think the legislature has in overseeing uh the monarch okay well, um, it was said that his legal expertise made him useful to all factions of France. And like you said, he had many powerful friends. Do you think he had an eye on the prize of ruling France? Because, you know, Robespierre ruled for a little bit and there was kind of like um, a lot of uh, interesting characters that kind of had c control of France. Do you think he ever wanted that? Like he wanted to be number one? I don't. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's no, we don't have any evidence that you know he didn't express that in any correspondence and and none of the the contemporaries um revealed him to be particularly ambitious uh you know juxtapose him with say Fouché and everybody knew that you know Fouché wanted to you know be the top dog at some point in life right. to your end. uh but there's not that same sort of buzz uh surrounding Canvas Array and I, I would like to clarify or just back up for a half second. He sure. did ultimately vote uh, for the king's execution mm. uh, after there was an initial round of ballots. And um, <laughs> in that initial round of ballots, the, the, they had a number of different options, including, you know, commutation and, and, and basically life in prison and then execution. The votes came down and by a single vote, uh, the legislature voted to execute uh, Louis. Right. And they thought that vote was a little too close. Uh, they wanted to be more careful, and they had a subsequent vote several days later, which which carried more of a more folks voted for the for the king's death. More so, of a majority vote on that one. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So he was, and he did the calculation, and eventually became a, a regicide. Well, yeah, and like like I said earlier, there's got to be repercussions for that regicide later on, but we'll get Correct. to that. Yeah, um, absolutely. So in 1795, just moving the story along, he serves on the Council of 500, as you said, is considered a moderate. Mm -hmm. He also serves as a diplomat. He uh, had admissions to Spain, Prussia, and Tuscany. Um, he had really good uh, debate skills. Just sound like a really valuable guy for France at this time. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, he also, at this point, by that point, by 1795, had already submitted two drafts uh, to overhaul France's entire legal system. I always describe people just archaic. It was very, I guess it depended on what territory of France you're in, what the laws that you had to follow, correct? It was very, uh, I guess, decentralized. Well, that's a great way to say it because of, of course, France was put together over the course of time through an amalgamation of marriages and wars and mm -hmm. conflict and, uh, oftentimes negotiation, and then sometimes the regions would negotiate their own particular, you know, regional customs and, and values and things. 
So, you know, on the eve of the, of the revolution, there wasn't a legal system in France. There were hundreds of different legal systems. Mm -hmm. Some of them in the southern part of France based on Roman law, some of them in northern part of France based on Norman law. You had a whole bunch of different feudal rights all over the place. Right. I mean, it was a total mess uh, in, in France. Trying to figure out how to bring any kind of case to court, just knowing where the legal jurisdictions were, mm -hmm. uh, you know, was a was a real challenge. Okay, well, we'll put a pin on that till 1804. We'll come back to that. Okay. Uh, in 1799, he's serving as Minister of Justice, using his legal skills, and supports Napoleon's coup for power in November of that year. Why do you think Napoleon appreciated his skills so much? Well, I think he appreciated that, that you might have noticed there's a little bit of gap there between 1795 yep. and 1799. Yep. Uh, Cambuseri is viewed as a little too politically conservative for the directors. Mm -hmm. So he essentially recedes into the background um working on some low-level stuff and then mostly spending time you know honing and polishing his mason connections and things got it um and so i think napoleon appreciated that kind of of uh, conservatism but the chemistry also did have a good friendship with ca and it's ca is the one that drives the coup in in 1799 Got so it. the night before the coup, they actually all get together in Cambuseray's house to, you know, get their marching orders, so yeah. to speak. So I think Cambuseray had an, an opportunity to impress Napoleon with his competence and with his, you know, command of the situation and, and probably his ability to see two or three steps ahead. Yeah, yeah. And um, uh, following Napoleon's uh, appointment to first council, Cambuseray becomes second council of France and Lebrun uh, becomes third council. Lebrun kind of focuses on more of the accounting and treasury stuff, right? While Cambuseray is doing the legal stuff. That's correct. Yeah. Okay. There's a great quote there, uh, if you don't mind sharing with me, about going to dinner with uh, uh, the, the three councils. <laughs> yeah. So, um one of the things that that Cambuseray was known for and and would certainly get more known for uh were his lavish dinner parties uh, he and Talleyrand would often sort of compete uh, and they, they both used a very famous chef of the age Antoine Carême um who working on pastries uh Carême was a pastry guy but he also changed um because he was working with Talleyrand at the time of when the Allies occupied Paris in 1814, mm -hmm. um, Talleyrand was entertaining uh, the Tsar, Tsar Alexander I, and the Tsar was so impressed with Karem that that he convinced Talleyrand to let him have Karem for the time period where he was occupying Paris. Mm. And one of the things that Alexander I insisted on was, uh, in the Russian style, they served their courses in turn. So for an American audience, you would have your appetizer and then your salad and then your entree and then your dessert and, and whatever in, in succession. Mm -hmm. The French style had been to put all of the courses on the table at once. Ah, I see. But it was this battle between Cambuseray and Talleyrand of mm -hmm. who could hold the better dinner party uh, that, that, that really kind of intensified that 
rivalry between those two and 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 brought Karam eventually to worldwide prominence. But Napoleon, uh, Napoleon really liked Canvas Ray, and and you can sort of tell if Napoleon gives you a little bit of a hard time, um, he he teases because he loves right and uh he he had a quote that uh this is what napoleon said if you want to dine well dine with canvas if you want to dine badly dine with lebrun if you want to dine quickly dine with me <laughs> that sounds very accurate yeah, yeah. Uh, well yeah so napoleon was uh, was of course notorious uh, for the rapidity at which he consumed his meals. Um, I mean, no better example of that is at the marriage in 1810 to uh, uh, Marie-Louise. Uh, they have a massive banquet for 3,000 people, which Karem was part of, and, and Cambus Array was largely in charge of putting together. And, uh, you know, the emperor finishes this whole massive undertaking uh, in about 20 minutes the guests are just shocked because right. they're not used to this. They're used to a, you know, at least a three hour production, if not a five hour production. Canvas right. array was notorious for sometimes holding five hour dinner parties. Oh, um, and of course the day of the time was you just can't e keep eating. If the emperor is done and stands up, then everybody's done. Yeah. Everyone's done. That's right. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, um, going back to our story, um, uh, Napoleon kind of pushes Cambasseray uh, and LeBron to the sidelines in terms of power. Do you think the other two councils minded this? Like, I, I think they didn't like despotism that Napoleon had within him, but they seemed to be okay with still being, you know, in power in France, correct? Yes, I think that's exactly accurate. I I think both of them, in, to a certain extent, both of them were chosen because of their personalities in the case that I don't want to say they're subservient, mm. um, you know, because that I, I think that implies some obsequiousness that, that, that isn't there. Mm. I, I, but neither one of them particularly sought the spotlight like that. Right. And I think they were fine. And Napoleon really empowers, well, Cambus Array in particular, with a great deal of, of power behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. and, and that suits him fine. Yeah. And, you know, as a ruler, like Abraham Lincoln, you know, you want to hire people that are smarter than you to do the, the things you don't want to do, which is overhaul the legal system, overhaul the financial system. And that's kind of what those two guys did. Correct. And, you know, their success at those were, were critical. Mm -hmm. And Bonaparte's popularity. Indeed. Um, so here we go back to the discussion I put a pin on. In 1804, Napoleon unveils his most famous legacy, which is na the Napoleonic Code. But Cambasere was the real brainchild behind this important work, wasn't he? Yeah, I, I think that's fair to say. Um, he'd been working on this by this time, by 1804, he's working on this for more than a decade. Mm -hmm. So he's made draft after draft after draft. And and in fact, as I mentioned earlier, two final reports 
during the revolution, but it, the timing just wasn't right on either one of those times for, for France to take up something like that. And Cambuceret is at the perfect place at the perfect time uh, to roll out the code. Now the code was done, a, you know, a good 16, 18 months before 1804. Um, and Cambuceret was, he was part of a committee. There were four other jurists who participated, but it was really Cambuceret who was in the driver's seat for this. And I should say that Bonaparte attended about half of the sessions uh, personally and mm -hmm. did have a big influence on what the civil code you know, would eventually look like. Because I think Bonaparte was smart enough to realize that the quickest way to really permanently cement a lot of the gains that had happened during the French Revolution uh, was through a clear and concise and clearly articulated uh, law system. Let's discuss the code. And I'm going to say briefly because, you know, <laughs> I try to keep it under an hour, these shows. Um, <laughs> well, right. Uh, how many times have I said, well, you could do a whole cast on that. You could. Um, yeah. I mean, and, and to look at it from afar, it's somewhat nebulous. But once you get into it, it's, it's very clear to a lot of countries Um why was this code so important to France and world history and, and the fact that we still use it today? Like, what, what was it really? Well, really what it did was it, it codified a lot of the principles that came out of the French Revolution. And, you know, for American audiences, you know, they might shrug and say, well, I mean, I don't know, what are you talking about? This is the way it's always been. Mm -hmm. But like, you know, starting at the most basic thing, like equality before the law that all of the citizens of France would be looked at equally right. under the eyes of the law. And of course that wasn't the case before the revolution. You had specific social classes, nobility had different rules and rights and obligations they followed. Clergy was largely not present in the judicial system. That They had their own you know, process for resolving whatever crimes they might have. Right. And you know, the access to justice was not it wasn't equal and through the revolution and codified through the code is the base of the most basic of that, that all people are equal in the eyes of the law. And yeah. that opened up things like careers being open to men with talent. And probably one of the most important things the code did was to kind of regulate the relationship between people and the state and property. Mm. And you'll recall that much of the support for Napoleon at home are from these new, he called the masses of granite, from these new middle-class folks who now own property that previously they weren't able to own. Mm -hmm. A lot of it was former church land, uh, but a lot of it was land seized from emigres and things. And so obviously if Napoleon is gonna codify something that's gonna allow them to keep those assets, then that's gonna bring them a lot of, bring Napoleon a lot of loyalty from those folks. Mm -hmm. so a lot of the property stuff in particular, um, and, and it's sane stuff. So the code is based off of Roman law. Mm -hmm. So this is clear and basic principles. It was published in vernacular French, so everybody could read it. It wasn't a mystery. And again, all of this talking about this in the 21st century, you know, as two Americans, and I know we have a worldwide uh, uh, audience, but you know, these are things that we just grow up with as kids, knowing that's just the way things work. Yeah, you take it for granted that, oh, it was always like this, but it wasn't. And 
And I think some critics would say, oh, it was forced upon other countries by Napoleon's conquests. And then and my, my counter is like, well, they clearly like the Napoleonic Code because they're still using it to this day. <laughs> they didn't right. come up with something better afterwards, you know? Right. And both of those can be true at the same time, right? So, yeah. yes, they, they it's entirely possible that, well, it was in fact the case that the code was forced onto some folks uh, uh, throughout Europe. Mm -hmm. But then uh, they don't change it uh, when Napoleon gets toppled in 1814 and, the, you know, you get the reactions after that. And none of these places throw the code out because it makes so much sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like I said, still used worldwide, which is absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. OK, so moving along in our story, um, in 1805, Cambasare is starting to disapprove of Napoleon's accumulation of power. You know, he's an emperor now. But he essentially becomes the second most powerful politician in France, correct? Because Napoleon's usually out on campaign. Yep, that is correct. So uh, when he brushes, when he finally ends the consulate, um, you know, Cambuceré gets a new title. Uh, but and he's de facto Napoleon's second when Napoleon is away from Paris, either through examining, you know, the, the camp at Boulogne or uh, actually on campaign. It's Cambuceré who's running the day-to-day -day things uh, in Paris. And and it's true, Cambuceré did, um, he disapproved of the consul for life. He disapproved of the uh, conversion of the consulate into an empire. Mm -hmm. He disapproved of Napoleon reestablishing uh, nobility. Um, Cambuceré was, again, uh, we've talked about his moderation, but he was a revolutionary at heart. And He's... while he disapproved of these things, he also realized that after the horrible abuses before the revolution and then the tumult and chaos during the revolution, mm -hmm. he regarded Napoleon as a pragmatist. Mm -hmm. And I think he looked at Napoleon as sort of the ultimate fulfillment of an 18th century concept of an enlightened despot. Mm -hmm. And while the path that Napoleon was taking might not be his first choice, he saw enough good in what Bonaparte was doing to, to continue to support and, and in fact, enable that. Right. And, you know, I know Napoleon and the people of France like the stability that they had um but i think it's it's great that napoleon had this guy in, in paris that he could leave behind because i know there was always conspiracies to topple napoleon the malay conspiracy to name one so yep. i think it was just i think it was just helpful napoleon to have this pragmatic man rule domestic policies while he was away on campaign right and, and it should be said that that you know napoleon did not fear canvas it didn't regard him as a rival or as someone who would seize power. Right. Even right. though Cambuceré may not have had, you know, may not have shared Napoleon's views on, you know, consul for life or the empire. It should also be said that uh, Cambuceré opposed Napoleon's uh, operations in, in Spain and also uh, opposed Napoleon's invasion of Russia. Yep. Yep. And we will come back to that. For yeah. sure. Yeah. Um, let's discuss Cambasseray's personal life. Um, it was an extravagant one. You know, he had many debts that he ran up and he liked to spend lavishly, like you said. What else do we know about his personal life? 
Well, he was a a flamboyant uh, a dude in 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 every sense of the way. Um, he was openly gay in a time period where that was really really unusual. Um, although that doesn't seem to have really factored much into, uh, you know, the thoughts that people had of him during the day. Mm-hmm. You know, he he tended to hang out with a lot of bachelors, mm-hmm. uh, which you would expect under those circumstances. Mm-hmm. But it didn't get in the way of him doing his job. And, you know, Napoleon would tease him on occasion uh, about his preference for hanging out with men rather than women. But it was a good natured. Uh, I mean, if those things can be coined as good natured, uh, it was a good natured razzing. And and the fact that Cambuseray was openly gay, remarkably, is probably one of the least interesting facets of of his you know personal life and, and of his life outside of his official duties. Yeah, it just doesn't come up really as a thing. Yeah. Now, Did in terms you- of the code, you do get asked a lot about. You know, what did he do anything? What did he do to, you know, decriminalize homosexual right. activity um, in France? The revolution had done a lot of that, eliminated a lot of that, although not specifically. The revolution did end a lot of um, persecutions that the church would do. Right. Um, it, it was a serious crime in France before the revolution under the Well, it was a capital crime, in fact. So, yeah. I mean, you could get executed, but... Yeah, burned at the stake, which is crazy. Yeah. So, but I mean, there were like five people in, in the 18th century that, that were charged with that. So <laughs> this was not something that that's... Actively you know, that prosecuted. Right. Happens all that often. And and so lumped up with, with eliminating laws against sodomy included like, you know, witchcraft and things like that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, he was also a uh, renowned gourmand, as mm-hmm. we've talked about. So he would hold lavish uh, dinner parties and he and uh, Talleyrand in particular used to compete uh, to, to, you know, see who could outdo the other one in terms of these things. And Napoleon was fine, super happy, in fact, to push those duties onto Cambuseray. Right. Um, Cambuseray was noted for his uh, rather rotund appearance. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was, uh, others, Napoleon and others would kid him for his uh, gluttony. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he he did like to eat and, and have a big party. Um, yeah. So, and I know Napoleon liked um, his marshals and and his ministers put on you know parties and fets and all that kind of thing. So, sure, absolutely. Yeah. And and, and Cambuseray was a little bit better at managing his finances than others. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he does in fact die, he's worth millions of mm-hmm. francs. Okay. So he, he has squirreled away, invested well. Um, so he could run off debts, but he could pay them off as well. So. Yes, yes. And, you know, Napoleon, uh, as you know, better than most, I would suspect, Berthier was the most highly compensated of the yeah. marshals. Yeah. So Napoleon knew who the important people were, and and uh, Cambuseray was well compensated okay. uh, for, his, for his efforts. Yeah, yeah. In 1880s, made Duke of Parma by Napoleon. And, um, yeah, it seems like, uh, the emperor really appreciated his skills and rewards them along the way. He does. Yeah. Curiously, uh, the the uh, opposed. He he tried to to decline that that uh, ennoblement. 
Mm. Um, he did not want the the title. And this was one that the, that particular one, the Duke of Parma, came with an income attached to it as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it was hereditary. And uh, Cambuserate, you know, tried to decline the, the offer, but eventually, of course, did take it. Uh, well, we know how things go poorly kind of after that in Spain and Russia. And after the fall of Napoleon in 1814, Cambuserate retires to private life, but returns as Minister of Justice during the Hundred Days. So it seems like Napoleon could always rely on him. But after Napoleon's second abdication in 1815, Cambastere is exiled, and could you tell us why uh, in 1815? Yeah, and, and this is interesting, and this is kind of one of those moments where his, you know, playing chess three and four moves ahead, I, you know, there's only so much you can do. So, yes, he did rally to Napoleon, and he was named uh, the Minister of Justice, mm -hmm. but he didn't actually assume the post, mm -hmm. um, trying to still, you know, kind of have it both ways you know to, he is trying his darndest to to ride this fence and so he does not reject the emperor but he he doesn't uh he doesn't embrace uh the bourbons either and of course that that does not work out for him right so after the uh during the restoration the bourbons uh looked at his service and looked at you know what he had done and he would be named minister of justice and things and then he's sent into exile like a lot of the you know loyal bonapartists after the um after the final defeat at waterloo yeah and so he goes to belgium uh and he lives lives across the way in belgium he's only there uh three or so years and then in the general sort of a there was a rapprochement uh if we can borrow a french phrase uh for the bourbons made in 1818 where a lot of the old, you know, marshals and Bonapartists and things were welcomed back into France. And then at that point, he does return uh, to France. Yeah, I think it's interesting, though, that the Bourbons were, you know, they had the White Terror in 1815 after they come back a second time. And he's also pushed out due to his vote for regicide. Was there records? I think it's fascinating that they were able to track down who voted for the the death of King Louis the Sixteenth? Like decades later, you know that they were able to like prosecute and find these people who voted for Louis' demise. Well, yeah, and of course there still are contemporaries alive who you know they vote inside the chamber, so you know they all know each other, and and right. you know it's not exactly a secret who who they did not do a secret ballot for uh, the vote of the king's death, mm -hmm. so. Uh, you know, everybody kind of knew who who voted for what and who didn't. Right. But I don't I mean, that, that shouldn't be much of a surprise it, uh, today. I think regardless of where you live and what political system you are, I, you can, you know, fairly well uh, figure out which politicians are going to vote which direction on on a particular piece of legislation. True. Well, uh, our good friend Kim Bessere, uh passes in 1824 and he's buried with military honors, which is very nice. Um, what do you think his legacy is looking back on it? You know, he's a remarkable in that he affects the, the everyday lives of millions of people on this planet. And many of them, of course, have, have no idea why. Right, right. <laughs> and, and that's through the strength of, of the code. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's the law system throughout most of Europe, a good chunk of Africa. Asia uh, has elements, even in North America, the Quebecois or Louisiana. 
have elements of the code. It's hard to underestimate. So everything in that civil code affects people on their daily lives. So it it uh, controlled inheritance, for instance, and how inheritance would work and their laws regarding how that can happen. Right. But it's also contract law. So anything, if you rent a property, you know, what rights and responsibilities do you have? What rights and responsibilities does a landlord have? Right. If you buy a house, all of those regulations are governed by the the code. If you buy a car, if you have consumer protections for this, um, you know, your fraud stuff for your credit card, all of these have roots in uh, the code that, that Canvas Array helped design for eventually what became the rest of the world. Yeah, and I'm glad you pointed that out. I think just because it's called the Napoleonic Code, I think people just assume that Napoleon went in a room somewhere and had divine inspiration and came up with this code. But it, it wasn't that way at all. Like you said, it was based on Roman law. Cambossere and others had their touches to it. So, of course, Napoleon gets the credit because he was the emperor at the time. But there were so many other people working on this. Well, and, and right. And I'm not a legal scholar. Mm -hmm. But what I have read, um, you know, English law is based, common law is based on case precedent. Yes. And case law and things. So if you're trying to export that law system to someplace that's never had any of that in the past, it's a difficult law system to get your head around. Mm -hmm. Whereas Napoleon wanted a law system where it was clear from the beginning what's allowable, what's not allowable without having to have, you know, tons and tons of case law as precedent. Right. So I think in that case, too, it was an easier legal system to export, um, either <laughs> willingly or unwillingly, um, uh, onto, onto other cultures and, and other regions. Very interesting stuff. Yeah. Uh, you also, though, you don't want to underestimate, uh, you know, people eat. And uh, Canvas Array, uh, through his support of, of particularly Chef Karam, uh, did a lot for the pastries that we enjoy today, the milfoya, for instance, really takes off during uh, the first empire, the change of the course and the eating styles. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this is natural stuff. So if you go to Applebee's and you're going to get a, you're gonna get an appetizer, a salad, <laughs> an entree, and maybe a dessert. Well, uh, you know, Canvas Array played a, a small part in that, but nevertheless, that's, that's about as basic as it comes. That's a good legacy as well. I love that. Yeah. Amen. All right, Charles. Well, Thank you, as always, my friend. That was really good stuff. Um, one call out. Uh, if you want to follow Charles on Twitter, it's the best Twitter handle in the world. Go ahead, <laughs> Go ahead Charles. It's it's at Bubbles Vampire. Uh, it's at Bubbles Vampire. I love that. I love that. And Charles, <laughs> Charles is very active. He's got some great Napoleon posts there uh, on Twitter, and I highly recommend you follow him there. And, yeah, my friend, thanks for coming on the show again. Thanks for inviting me, John. I appreciate it. I had a great time. Indeed. Me too. Thanks, bud.